From the Financial Times in London, I'm Patrick Jenkins, the FT's financial editor, and this is FT News. Ewan Stevenson, the finance director of Royal Bank of Scotland, was recently in the studio talking to us about the outlook for RBS. Now, RBS was the biggest banking bailout of the financial crisis back in 2008, when the UK government had to pump £46 billion to save the institution. Well, it's come a long way since then, but it's still more than 71% owned by the UK government. So I talked to Ewan Stevenson about the prospects for reprivatisation as well as the outlook for the UK economy. We can listen to that interview now, and I'm also joined by Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent, to discuss what he had to say. I started by asking Ewan whether his position at RBS gave him a unique insight into the UK government's planning for the macroeconomy and Brexit. Yes, I'm not sure the 71% ownership gives us particular insight into government thinking, but yeah, we are the biggest commercial bank in the country. We look at the world based on what we can see in terms of consensus economic outlook and you know we've had a very consistent view i think since brexit that we're planning on the basis of low growth low inflation low rates even with some of the recent noise around possible interest rate rises my own view is we are looking at a low rate environment for a long period of time coupled with the fact that i do think technology is a sort of deflationary scenario as well on top of that So what does that mean when you sit down with investors? Because as well as being majority government owned, you do have a substantial number of commercial investors as well. When you sit down with those people, what kind of sales pitch can you do to them, given that the macro outlook is pretty challenging? Well, I think even with that macro outlook, banks generally are a product of their own macro economies. So unless the economy is leveraging or deleveraging, the banking sector typically grows in line with nominal GDP. So that's not a surprise to investors. They understand it. When we look at returns in the UK, which is 80% of what we do now, we think we can earn comfortably above cost of capital returns. So even if the growth outlook is lower, we do think from a returns perspective, it remains an attractive place to do banking. What about RBS's own idiosyncratic issues? Probably the one big black cloud hanging over the bank still is the mortgage-backed securities settlement that we're expecting you to strike at some point with the US Department of Justice. From an investor point of view, I guess that is the one thing that may be holding people back. Look, we understand it's a significant issue. We would like to get it resolved. We've been very clear, I think, publicly that we'd like to get this resolved. And you're right, whether you talk to equity investors, rating agencies, fixed-income investors... Even internally with staff, it's a significant overhang on us. And ultimately, I think it is holding back the government's ability to privatise us. And what is the timing on that? Because you have been talking, at least informally, to the DOJ for some time. I know you'd love to settle this by the end of the year. That's not entirely in your own hands, clearly. But whether or not you can, do you think financially you can get this behind you? Even if you haven't struck a settlement by the end of December, can you provision what you might expect to be paying by the end of December to get this done and dusted in 2017? Yeah, I mean, to get it done and dusted, we clearly need to get it settled. And I think until we get it settled, it also has consequences for things like stress testing. Because even if we were to provide an incremental amount against an expected settlement, that wouldn't solve the stress characteristics in a stress test, for example. 
And that's obviously a, a short-term problem for you, potentially, because there are stress tests from the UK regulator just around the corner. You failed those last year. How confident are you that you can pass this year? Look, we know we're on a path of continuous improvement, so it's sort of speculative how we may do this year. But we're building a business model that we think is comfortably able to pass stress tests once we can get the final legacy issues resolved. The biggest one, as we've just talked about, is our MBS, and hence why Ross and I are very keen to make progress if we can this year. And just to press you on that, how likely is it that you will be able to do it by the end of the year? Well, I think you used the word, we'd love to get it resolved. I think that probably is what Ross and I would love to get done. Okay, and a final question on that. The amount is clearly going to be very important. Deutsche Bank went through some pretty major tribulations ahead of their own settlement, which ended up being far less than the $14 billion figure that was first mooted. You were a bigger player in this market than Deutsche. What does that leave you assuming in terms of where you end up? Well, we've obviously done extensive modelling around this. I think it's very difficult to look actually at prior settlements and draw quantitative conclusions. You can't say just because you had 20% more of the market that you're going to pay 20% more penalty. It's not the ability to do that. We've got existing provisions, but I think we've also been very open that we do expect final settlement costs to be well in excess of our current provision. Okay. Talking about the liability outlook... There's been quite a lot of focus recently on the extent to which deposits are sticky. So that level of funding that banks such as yourself get, I think you're predominantly funded by deposits. So your loan to deposit ratio is less than 100%. And whether changes in the marketplace, for example, shift to mobile banking, the so-called open banking rules, which are going to force banks to make themselves far more interchangeable as providers of accounts for customers, whether all those things make deposits less sticky and therefore less important and less valid as a regulatory liquidity resource, and to what extent that changes the whole dynamic of what people think of as safe banking funding, whether we're going to see a real seismic shift back towards long-term wholesale funding as of far greater importance for banks going forward. We're spending quite a bit of time at the moment role-playing what could happen under open banking. I, I think all open banking does when it gets introduced from next year is really accelerate what we were likely to see anyway, given progress in technology. It is, as you say, going to be much easier for people through apps to move deposits from one bank to another, which, depending on the propensity and adoption rates of customers to do that, could have an impact on our liquidity. So we are having to think about what those liquidity impacts could be. We've already started to take steps. We did our first covered bond financing earlier this year for the first time in five or six years. So I think we will seek to diversify our funding sources, but I don't think we're going to get back to the days that we saw 10 years ago of predominantly wholesale financed banking groups. It's striking a new balance, I guess. And a final question for you. It's now nine years on from the height of the financial crisis in 2008 when you were predominantly nationalised by the then government. What outlook do you see for returning wholly to the private sector? What is the time frame? What needs to happen before that can take place? Well, for us, it's obviously up to the government to decide when they want to privatise. All we can do is continue to sort of deliver the plan. I think we feel we're very close now. We talked about RMBS, but once we get that solved, I think a lot of good things can happen very quickly for us. We become profitable. We start paying dividends. I think the whole narrative around us as an institution changes at that point, the rating agencies, debt investors. I think that provides a decent platform at that point for the government to begin to privatise. We think 
We've adjusted our business model several years ago to focus on the UK. It makes decent returns in the UK. So we're very happy with the hard work we did a few years ago to change strategy, and we just need to get one or two legacy issues resolved. In your previous life, you were a financial institutions banker at Credit Suisse. If you were in a position where you were having to return or move a stake of 71% from one owner to another, this would take a long time, though, wouldn't it? Not necessarily. I mean, I think the capital markets for good equity stories are relatively open. It will take a few years, I think, but it could happen relatively quickly if the government chose to. Well, fingers crossed. Thank you very much, Ewan Stevenson. So, Emma, we've heard a lot from Ewan. What do you make of what he had to say? I suppose the most interesting thing was his comments around the sell-down of the government's stake. Indeed. Royal Bank of Scotland has worked hard this year to clear some of the major legacy issues that have been plaguing it since the financial crisis. It managed to settle with the FHFA in the US over alleged mis-selling of mortgage-backed securities. And it's also found a resolution for disposing of Williams and Glynn, a project which it ended up abandoning and has worked with the Treasury to find an alternative solution. So it's cleared these two big hurdles, but the last one remaining is a big fine from the Department of Justice, again for mis-selling mortgage-backed securities during the financial crisis. And this really is the last big hurdle that arguably needs to be cleared in order for the government to be able to restart selling down its 71% stake in the bank. The reason being is because investors are arguably reluctant to buy in at this stage when this big unknown fine is looming on the horizon. Martin, you wanted to add something on that. Indeed, just from talking to some of the investment bankers, some of whom I know listen to this show, and investors as well, big investors in RBS, I have picked up that they sense no urgency in government ranks to push ahead with selling shares in RBS because the government is weakened by the loss of its outright majority in June's election, but also pretty much distracted by infighting between cabinet ministers and the priority is all about Brexit and anything else is a distraction for the government. And I think the weakness of the government at the moment means that they just don't want to take on any additional headaches And this would be another headache because the shares are trading far below the in price, which is above £5, but also below the £3.30 price at which the government under George Osborne, the previous chancellor, sold the first tranche of shares a couple of years ago. Well, that was a segment from the FT's Banking Weekly podcast, which goes out every Tuesday and is available from all the usual podcast apps. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.